It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, man. I'm doing okay. Getting settled into the new spot and figuring out my my life again, but things are good. Like, like Drake would say, we're back to back having you on <laughs> uh, the podcast series. Happy to have you. Happy that you are settled in. Um, I also saw just, just now, this is like breaking news. There's a pool near your place and not just any pool. This looks like a, it's, it's an Olympic length pool, but they put it yeah, a wider 50 in. meters. Yeah. 50 meters long. And, and I think it's probably either 25 meters or 25 yards wide. And, uh, so they can set it up in either direction for routine lap swimming, but it had blocks all around it. So I can tell they use it for competitions. They had flags. So I, uh, anticipate spending some time there. Nice. <laughs> I remember in high school when I, they were trying to get me to, to swim the backstroke because my preferred stroke was to fly, but I, I was never going to yeah. be the flyer because the guy who did the fly on our team was actually, he's like an Olympic alternate. Like, so he was actually good and I was a freshman, so yeah. not good. So they're like, oh, we'll teach you to do the other stupid stroke, which is the backstroke. But they didn't <laughs> tell me what the flags meant. Like I didn't know. And so I'm just like, oh, mm. cool. They got flags. That's nice decorative piece. <laughs> oh, 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 God. Oh, oh, oh. Slams into the wall. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny how many how many so you didn't do a lot of backstroke but how many like strokes would you have before you like ro- rolled over and then did your flip turn usually uh if i'm going at normal speed it'd usually be like probably three and i'd roll over on the fourth yeah okay i didn't know i was just like oh, well cool flags <laughs> bam it may have been two and i rolled over on the third i don't remember because backstroke is by far my worst stroke so i did not do that very often at all same, same. <laughs> it's like oh how do you want do you want to drown in front of people do the backstroke yeah. right right yeah. uh so you've been moving i've been racing uh start of a motocross series uh, about three the beginning of this month so people are like what are your training goals and i'm like well i can tell you one thing it's not sbd right now it's uh let's stay upright, not kill myself on a bike. And then it's, it's interesting because it's, it's certainly more process oriented than lifting. Um, mainly because I think cause, cause I have a greater appreciation of like how outside of my control, my results actually are. So particularly being in Southern California, which is like the Mecca for dirt bike racing, like all the major factories and manufacturers and teams and everybody's out here. Now I don't compete against those guys. Those guys are the best of the best, but because this is the Mecca, all the hangers honors, hangers on (laughs) whatever, you know, and all the, the people who like were previously pro, but now still race in my class they're, they're here. So like if they show up and we're racing the same class, I can't like reasonably expect to beat a number of them, but rather what I could do is like, okay, I can, maintain my lap times throughout the race. I can be smooth. I can, um, you know, put it forth my best effort. I can all sorts of things that are basically related to effort and trying and like, you know, putting, putting in a, a good, um, you know, sort of race. But as far as like, am I going to win? The people are like, you, you want to win? I'm like, well, yeah, of course, but it just depends who shows up. It's like a, it's a power, it's like a powerlifting meet, right? Like if I went to a powerlifting meet and, you know, John Hack shows up and we're in the same weight class. Like, well, I'm not winning and it's not, <laughs> and it, and it ha- there's nothing I can do about it, you know? Yeah, and that, yeah. and that's fine. But when people are like, I I'm going to this meet to win. And I'm like, do you know who's showing up? Cause that yeah. would be like, you'd need to know that. That would be unfortunate if all of the value was placed on that one outcome. And so you're, you're kind of moving the goalposts to things that are more achievable. Kind of like we talked about recently with like strategies to, you know, 
keep it, keep things going in training is moving the goalposts to things that keep you motivated, keep you interested, keep you, you know, following, following the process. Yeah. I think one of those things, especially for like higher level competitors or people that have been doing it for a while. Um, and this is not just powerlifting, but you know, whatever, if your your entire season's success hinges on the performance at a singular event. So for powerlifting, mm-hmm. it's like nationals, like, did you win nationals? So can you yeah. go to worlds? Does your season continue? It's like, well, you almost have to be outcome oriented at that point. But I think yeah. that actually leads to a little bit of burnout in a way, uh, just for sure. like for sure. a lot of pressure. And it's like, well, I man, it just didn't go my way this year or these few years. And it's like, well, that, so do you, do you even like the process? Do you even like, yeah. the, you know, and then even when things do go well, I mean, think about like the post Olympic syndrome that people talk about every four years with like Olympians falling into a deep depression after the, after the games, you know, it's like they've been even to the extent that they are process oriented along the way, they're still training for the Olympic games. And even if they win a medal and then afterwards they're like, who am I? Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like, it's like a tough thing no matter what. So, uh, yeah, I, I know for sure that outcome very specific outcome oriented things are not the move as far as keeping things uh, enjoyable and engaging uh, long term. Yeah. So as far as the moto, the moto stuff goes, I'm just pumped to like keep it on two wheels, like don't yard sale, don't, you know, kill myself. Keep and your shoulders then, in place. <laughs> yeah. But like, I think, I think the reason why it's so exciting is like the technical requirements of the, of riding are not only so much different than lifting, but also there's just like a heavy skill component. It's just like golf, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously the skills are different, but there's such a heavy skill component that that is appealing to me rather than like, okay, I'm as fit or in powerlifting's case, as strong as I can possibly be, which is relatively simple co- compared. Like it's just you, you, the, the amount of adaptations and skills and everything are relatively limited and fixed compared to like, yeah, you're going to go on a, closed course that is going to have changing conditions with a lot of unpredictability from the other competitors and uh yeah good luck mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. um anyway so that's been fun uh let's see other announcements we've got the new apparel we announced that last week it's out new drip so if you're looking to support the latest barbell medicine swag he- head over to our website link to that in the description below you can help support us help support our podcast and some of the other uh free stuff that we put out um, by getting some of our merch. Also, speaking of free stuff, our app is still available in the Apple App Store. We just we just pushed an update, and I get confused on like the timeline. Like, oh, we're updating this. Like, you know, is there a set timer in there now? I don't know. We got some stuff in the works. There's a lot of stuff we've been working with the uh, developers on, and so as they come out, you'll get free updates. But yeah, you can check out all of the our templates, all of our material, uh, and get free access to a lot of cool stuff um, in an organized and aesthetically pleasing manner if you are a blue text message person so if you're an apple person for the green text bubble folks keep waiting on that we'll announce it we promise when it's available uh and then we just published an article on spondy so all of the spondylolisthesis <laughs> i know that's not the plural of spondy but like there's just <laughs> it's like spondylolysis spondylolisthesis spondylo you know whatever spondylolysis you just keep going but anyway dr derek miles uh and uh, wrote that you helped edit it um and then i i forget who his colleague was um is a woman from stanford another physical therapist she helped him write that uh but it's two part series so part 2 will be published this week part 1 is already up i've linked that in the uh 
description below. We'll have him on the podcast next week, I believe. Talk about that. Um, yeah, and I think just as an aside, that article met, you know, some people might say, okay, if if I'm not somebody who is known to have one of these conditions, like spondylolisthesis, for example, then that article is not super applicable to me. And and to some extent, I get that uh, sentiment. However, I would say that the overall the, Derek bakes a bunch of really important, like kind of rehab principles in that article, in the, uh, in both parts of that article that are very much generalizable to people who have back pain in general. Um, yeah. and so even in the absence of that particular diagnostic label, even if you have not been told that you have this very particular thing, I think that the article series is very helpful for laying out principles of like, how would we approach rehab in somebody or like return to various sporting activities in somebody who has back pain, um, in general. And then, you know, obviously there are th some more, um, uh, uh, specific considerations for those conditions, but, uh, I think it's uh, useful, useful pieces for, for the general audience as well, from a back pain perspective. Yeah, I agree. Especially if you were worried that you may have something structurally afoot <laughs> uh, yeah. there. And because, you know, all of these spondies technically have something structurally going on. And so you're like, well, wait, even if I have a, you know, a partial fracture of this particular anatomical segment of the vertebra, you're saying I can train and we're like, well, we can, we can work on it. Yeah. So yeah. I think it's, if you're having back pain and you're interested in how to like return to exercise or like modify exercise to meet you where you're at, that article, pain and training, what do be a great place, great places to start. Alan's video on like hurt my back. Now what? Yeah. Yeah. Both be good. Uh, but you know, those are not, that's not the reason why we're here today. We're here to talk about your favorite topic. I know you love these, this particular topic, this particular niche. We're talking about multivitamins. You love vitamins. We're talking about multivitamins specifically today. And uh, you know, are multivitamins good for your health and or performance? And should you be taking one? I feel like this is like a you know the eight billion dollar question because that was the the revenue in twenty twenty eight billion dollars. <laughs> so uh, and the reason we're discussing this today is because a new USPSTF guideline was published in late June. So Austin, what does that stand for? Like, why do people go to these guidelines? Why is this even important? Yeah. So anybody who's a clinician, particularly from a primary care perspective, um, will be familiar with the USPSTF. This is the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. And this is a very highly regarded, objective, multidisciplinary kind of organization that does evidence synthesis on various uh, things that relate to preventative health, having to do with things like screening. Obviously, you know, if you say multivitamin is one of my favorite topics, probably secondary only to, to screening, which is another one that we've talked about at length before. And that's something that this organization does a lot of um, uh, work on as far as synthesizing uh, uh, trial evidence, scientific evidence to come out with guidelines for practice of as far as what should we do, what um, sorts of things uh, um, are there for which the benefits outweigh the harms, or are there things out there for which the harms outweigh the benefits and we should definitely not do them from like a preventative primary care type perspective. And so, you know, for anybody who's listened to our screening stuff and we've talked about, hey, these are the things you really should be doing. For example, getting like your blood pressure checked, getting your blood lipids, cholesterol panel checked, um, things like that. What things shouldn't you do? Getting various, you know, other kinds of screenings uh, uh, in people who feel well, look well, have no issues, getting cer certain blood tests that's not necessarily recommended for uh, all comers who don't have any signs or symptoms of, of uh, illness. And so those are all the kind of things that this um, this committee uh, uh, puts together. They're very uh, highly regarded and do excellent work in this space. And so this new guideline came out uh, just last month. And so that's kind of what prompted this particular topic. Because otherwise, uh, yeah, I, I typically don't go out of my way to discuss multivitamins in general most of the time. 
Yeah. Well, but there's, there are people, I mean, particularly because you're hospital based. And so whenever somebody comes, gets admitted, I would imagine you see multivitamin on the, their med list. Yes. Fairly frequently. Very often. Very often. Yes. Yeah. Which is interesting because there's no set def- definition of what a multivitamin is. So I think we can start this podcast with like, what is a vitamin? What is a multivitamin? And so, you know, the listeners know exactly what we're talking about. Uh, vitamins by definition are organic compounds that cannot be made by the body and are essential to life. So I think the original term Casimir Funk, uh, you know, when he discovered this stuff, he called it vitamin, right? So it's like essential vital to life. And then amine was like this amino acid based, uh, structure, but we've since learned that not all of them um, are like that. And, you know, it's interesting. Vitamin D is not technically doesn't fit this definition, for example, because vitamin D can be made by the body, but we already did a podcast on that. We'll refer you to that and link that in the description below. But uh, vitamins are further classified as either being water or fat soluble based on their ability to dissolve in water, which has further implications on their absorption, transport, storage, and removal from the body. In general, water-soluble vitamins like the B vitamins are absorbed into the bloodstream, carried freely without transport proteins because the blood, you know, your serum is water-based and uh, it's excreted in the urine uh, when levels are too high. They don't typically get stored in fat because again, they're water soluble. And so the amount of water soluble vitamins that you have on board at any given time uh, are relatively low. And if you don't take them in on a, you know, fairly regular basis, it's pretty, can be easier to become deficient. Uh, in contrast, fat soluble vitamins are absorbed into the lymphatic system, carried on transporter proteins because they can't dissolve in water. So again, your blood's like mostly water. So you need a protein to like carry them along and they can be stored for long periods of time in the adipose tissue. Um, with respect to multivitamins in particular, there is no standard or regulatory definition such as what nutrients they must, they must contain or in what amounts manufacturers basically arbitrarily determine the different types of vitamins, other minerals and additional ingredients that they put into this supplement and they sell them without real regulation of like, you have to have 10 separate things in there, 15, 30, and what amounts they just kind of like guess. Um, some of them, you know, will have the RDAs, the recommended dietary allowance amount in a single pill. Some of them will have much greater. Some of them will have half. Some of them have three quarters of all the vitamins that are recommended. It's just kind of arbitrary up to the manufacturer. Um, additionally, many supplements that are not labeled as multivitamins will actually have multiple vitamins in them. Um, so it could be called like an antioxidant supplement and it might contain like vitamin C, E, selenium, zinc, and beta carotene. And it's called an antioxidant supplement, which in, when in reality, it's a multivitamin because it has multiple vitamins. Um, in any case, these products all have widely varying compositions, and that has implications for study. Because when you're like, oh, what is the effect of multivitamins on like heart disease? And you're like, okay, well, what is our definition that we're going to use for multivitamins? And if we're doing like a meta-analysis, a study of studies, if you have 20-something studies, the odds that they all use the same or even similar definitions of what a multivitamin is, the same concentration of vitamins in the supplement, yeah, the the quality of the studies, and especially when you combine them or pool them uh, to try to figure, make sense of things, that, that your confidence just goes down because you're like, I don't really know what we're looking at. These things are so much different, you know, and, and that would not fly in any other like branch of medicine. If you were like, what is the effect of antihypertensive medications on blood pressure? And he'd be like, wait, we're just going to study all of them at once. Like that's not going to work. 
Right. Which is an interesting thing to point out because like people, uh, a, a lot of folks would feel more comfortable taking a multivitamin for any outcome that they believed it helped with versus a pharmaceutical product. And if you compare the rigor of the data supporting one versus the other, and it's like the, in the pharmaceutical intervention, you know, it, it's, it's uh, more likely to be double-blinded and placebo-controlled and dose-controlled and, and and all this other kind of stuff that's going to go into it um, compared to these things where uh, you're, like you said, a little bit all over the place. And pe- But people, you know, maybe some some uh, conspiratorial-type thinking tends to lean people in a very particular direction um, on this matter. Yeah. yeah, well, we see that with like a red yeast rice extract versus statins. So like the active ingredient in red yeast rice extract is the same active ingredient in love a statin, one of the first statins ever created. But people in general are like, oh, well, it's a dietary supplement. It's not, I can get it over the counter. It's got to be safer or better or more natural or yeah. <laughs> something compared to love a statin. Well, the, the problem is that the amount of the active ingredient is not regulated. Okay. And then think, think too, it's not very precisely controlled and therefore not, and not as well studied uh, in addition to other concerns like contamination uh you know preservation through shipping and distribution etc cetera, etc cetera. and in fact it is actually illegal to sell a red yeast rice extract supplement that has active ingredient in it right now because lovastatin was actually on the market first and one of the rules for making a supplement is you can't have a supplement with the active ingredient that's the same as a pharmaceutical agent so anyway that's an aside maybe we'll do a whole podcast dedicated to supplements, but today we're just going to talk about multivitamins. So let's talk about who takes multivitamins. So people in the United States have taken a multivitamin since the early 1940s when these products first became available. It is the most common supplement used in the United States and worldwide. Um, There's actually been an apparent recent decrease in multivitamin use, uh, though if you look at like how many people in the United States are actually taking one? Uh, an estimate—it's estimated that a third of all adults in the United States take a multivitamin, and one quarter of children and adolescents take a multivitamin. This is worth eight billion dollars. Uh, Twenty twenty is the latest year we have sales data on, so it's an eight billion dollar industry, which represents fourteen percent of all supplements. Uh, just for comparison, creatine supplements represented about two hundred twenty-four million. So if you look at like if we did a, a bar graph of like <laughs> sales of multivitamins for sales of creatine, the sales of multivitamins would dwarf creatine, would dwarf creatine and protein combined. Um, so very commonly used, a lot of sales, big industry. Um, and as far as like why people take multivitamins, um, you know, if you asked somebody like, well, you know, why do you take a multivitamin? The, the most commonly cited reason for using these types of supplements is for overall health and wellness in addition to fill nutrient gaps in the diet which brings up a point like is there actual an actually a need to fill new nutrition gaps in the diet and so what you'd want to see is like yeah there's a big risk of people being nutrient deficient particularly of vitamins or certain minerals that are in multivitamins and in fact when you look at the data about a third of the united states is at risk for deficiency uh, though the prevalence varies according to things like socioeconomic status uh life stage so just you know where people are in their life if they're infants if they're adolescents if they're adults if they're older adults uh, uh, those uh who are underweight uh, uh, uh and or are with overweight and obesity those those folks tend to have a higher prevalence compared to normal weight individuals uh and, and things of that nature so the that kind of gives you a lay of the land like 
is there a need, but you can go further down the rabbit hole and, and those who actually use dietary supplements, uh, particularly multivitamins tend to have a higher vitamin intake from their regular diet. It's sort of like this healthy user, healthy bias. Like if you're a type of person who's like going to buy a multivitamin, your baseline diet is likely to contain higher amounts of vitamins than people who wouldn't take a multivitamin. Yeah. It's just a difference in how much you care. And that's what, <laughs> like, that's the common cause here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, for example, there's a large study of about 90,000 men and women age 45 and older um, in LA and Hawaii. And it found that those taking multivitamins, which is about 25% of the study population, um, almost three quarters of them had adequate intakes of all vitamins across the board. Uh, and they examined 17 different vitamins in that case. Um, those who were using multivitamins tended to have a higher percentage of adequacy as far as like taking in enough vitamins in their diet, um, specifically for vitamins A and E. But multivitamin users also had excess intakes of several nutrients uh, like vitamin A, iron, zinc, and niacin. It bears repeating that those who take multivitamins in general have a higher nutrient intake at baseline. And so ironically, the populations who are at highest risk of nutritional inadequacy and would be likely to benefit the most from multivitamins are the least likely to take them. So non-Hispanic blacks, people of low socioeconomic status, individuals who are underweight or overweight are among the groups with the greatest risk of nutrient deficiency. Um, they're the least likely to actually take multivitamins, which it's kind of unfortunate. So I'm, th I'm thinking, you know, if I saw a patient in the clinic and I was like, oh, what supplements do you take, if any? Um, and they were like multivitamins, like right there. I'm already thinking like, well, their diet is likely to contain a higher amount of vitamins at baseline just, just from the fact that they're willing to purchase and take a multivitamin or report that they're taking a multivitamin. They probably view themselves as a healthier person. I got to take these multivitamins to stay healthy, things of that nature. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that this is interesting, but when you think about it a little bit, also uh, ultimately unsurprising in, in the terms that you said, just like it, it, the, the common cause of both of these things is just a difference in both the amount of, uh, to some extent, knowledge and interest and caring about this thing. And also just, you know, the availability, the resources, the access, um, to actually do that particular thing and stick to it over time. Yep. So in general, people who do take a multivitamin, they do tend to have a lower risk of vitamin deficiency than those who don't take a multivitamin. But the deficiency risk and the absolute like level of deficiency don't seem to correlate well with dietary intake or supplementation, uh, which is kind of what we saw when we talked about vitamin D status, meaning that people who had high intakes of vitamin D in their diet or supplement with vitamin D that didn't necessarily correlate well with their vitamin D levels. So it seems to be a little bit more complicated. So this is actually a, a really interesting segue into talking about, well, what does it actually mean to be deficient or to have sufficient intake or at very high levels, uh, toxicity. So Austin, like when you're thinking about these terms, nutrient deficiency, sufficiency, toxicity, like what does that mean to you? Um, if you're, if you're looking at that in the case of, uh, somebody in the hospital or, or something like that. Yeah. This is something that comes up actually more often than you might think for me in the hospital, but it is important to point out that this is a very different situation, context, environment than how people typically 
think about these terms and and apply them more in like the fitness sphere. And so um, if I'm if I'm seeing a patient who is obviously to get admitted to the hospital in most situations, I won't say every single time, but in most situations, there is a medical reason why you're getting admitted to the hospital, a sign, a symptom, um, uh, or some manifestation of potential, you know, disease or illness that is, uh, um, you know, uh, could could impact your health trajectory. And so if um, the thing that you are showing up with uh, could potentially be uh, attributed to a nutrient deficiency of, of some kind, be it a vitamin or a mineral or, or something like that, um, then uh, that would be a situation where um, I may choose to investigate that a little bit further. And so the concept of a nu- nutrient or nutritional deficiency in these situations is one where um, somebody has, you know, a, a proven low level of a particular nutrient that is known to cause a particular clinical syndrome that I'm seeing in front of me in in, in the person. This is uh, sounds simple. It's a lot more complicated than you would think, just because of all the issues with actually determining nutrient status. So it's you know uh, again, this is another area where things are more complicated than people think. They think that you can just like oh check a blood test of like a zinc level and it'll tell you exactly you know whether you're deficient or sufficient or have too much in your body. And it's like eh, there's a lot more going on with um, measuring and interpreting blood tests of nutritional markers, as well as many other things. This, as an aside, is a topic that um, several months back, I was a guest on uh, Danny Lennon's uh, Sigma Nutrition podcast to talk about uh, blood tests and interpretation and all the the, the hairy things that can, <laughs> that can happen when you try to check these things. So it is a really complicated thing to determine and prove nutrient deficiency in, in many situations. I would be looking for a general clinical syndrome, like signs, symptoms of a particular disease or, or, or condition that fit with what I would expect with a particular nutrient deficiency. And then I'd be actually in most situations doing a little bit of research to make sure that I'm measuring the right things to prove that. And then expecting that if I return this person to normal levels of that nutrient that this syndrome should in most situations um, uh, ideally improve. And there are a variety of conditions in which that is the case or where people are at much higher risk um, of having these kind of deficiencies. And we'll, and we'll get to those later. Um, this broad in-between range of sufficiency, having generally enough, um, or if you have levels that you know on a lab test might be flagged as low, but you have no signs or symptoms of that uh, of that particular deficiency, um, which is a term that some people call insufficiency, which uh, is, is differentiated from deficiency where you would actually have not just low levels, but also like manifestations of this, like some kind of a, a biological problem that emerges from not having enough of this nutrient. So there's this broad in-between range of either insufficiency where, you know, the way I think about it is, okay, the reference range, the, the level on the test is, is flagging as low, but you feel fine, look fine. You have no overt manifestations of this uh, nutrient level. Sufficiency, quote unquote, normal levels of this nutrient. And then toxicity would be at the high end where in contrast to deficiency, you're also having problems, uh, signs, symptoms of disease complications uh, due to excessive levels of a very of a particular nutrient. And this is another one where I'd be, you know, expecting a particular clinical syndrome. I'd be, you know, what is what are the typical signs that I would expect if somebody has true vitamin D toxicity, for example? Does this person show those? Can I can I see evidence of those things? And making sure that I'm using the correct methods of testing and interpretation to actually prove that. And hoping that if I can get those levels resolved by figuring out why they're high, for example, if they're mega dosing supplements, stop. Or if there's some other driver of this level being high, treating that, that getting them back down into the quote unquote normal or sufficient range um, that that uh, uh, syndrome of toxicity would 
resolve. And so this is kind of like the spectrum that we think about, people ranging from deficiency to this vague nebulous category of insufficiency uh, to sufficiency, having enough, or toxicity. And this is just kind of a, this is an important kind of uh, a concept to understand because uh, when you look at um, nutritional supplementation studies, uh, such as those that we'll be discussing uh, a little bit later on today, um, you have to interpret the results kind of cautiously because it is very typical in these kind of studies, particularly when that's used in a randomized controlled trial fashion where they take a whole bunch of people, supplement some, don't supplement others and look at outcomes that they don't always necessarily, you know, assess what are the starting levels that these people have? Are they necessarily taking people who are deficient at, at the start and supplementing them up to a normal level? Or is it just a whole mix of people, some of whom may be deficient, some of whom may be sufficient, supplementing all of them? And then as a result, you may end up with a with a result that uh, is like a false negative result, meaning that there was no apparent impact, but you didn't actually differentiate between people who started out low and got to normal, start out normal, got to the high end or, or anything in between. So this is just one example of how interpreting this research can get real tricky um, and how complicated this whole field is, I guess. Yeah. And, and and that is in addition to like, again, not all these vitamins have defined or agreed upon levels for what is deficient versus what is insufficient, but most have a normal range, although testing those can be difficult because it's not just a blood test in some cases. Sometimes it's a tissue level test or sometimes it's a particular element within the blood that you have to test like a red blood cell and its concentration of a particular uh, vitamin or mineral. And and some of these have toxic levels that are well-established, others don't. Um, and then again, there could be many reasons why somebody is low, high, normal, um, that are uh, sometimes related to dietary intake, sometimes related to other disease processes, um, et cetera. Um, so yeah, in many cases, you know, if you're below the normal range that may be associated with a clinical syndrome, like vitamin C deficiency is commonly associated with scurvy, bleeding gums, impaired wound healing, et cetera. Um, and then usually toxic levels, if they exist, are much, much higher than that. Um, and that's also confounded by the fact that many dietary supplements may be contaminated or contain other agents that can cause toxicity independent of that particular vitamin you're investigating. So some vitamin C supplements, for example, will contain vitamin E in addition to that. And like you can, while there's no really well-established toxic level of vitamin C, there are toxic levels of vitamin E. And so you're like, oh, was it the vitamin C or the vitamin E? Or was it, the, was it uh, them taken together in tandem? Um, so it can be complicated for sure. But overall, the purpose of taking a multivitamin, so a vitamin uh, supplement that contains multiple different minerals and vitamins, would be to increase an individual's intake to the recommended dietary allowance, the RDA, to reduce the risk of deficiency or insufficiency in groups that are like uh, at risk of those things, and thereby reduce the risk of diseases associated with these vitamin deficiencies. Uh, we would also, at the same time, want to avoid the risk of very high doses of vitamins uh, in those that have known toxic levels. So that's, that's the reason why you, you know, someone might want to take a multivitamin, but this also assumes two things that blood and tissue levels of vitamins are directly tied to the dietary intake uh, from these sources. So foods and supplements, and that increasing the blood level of these certain vitamins via food and supplementation, uh, but no other changes like body composition treat and, or reduce the risk of disease. And it just like we saw in the vitamin D podcast, just because you give somebody a vitamin D supplement and it does increase their vitamin D level, that may not actually change the course of their disease because the reason why their vitamin D levels were low was almost a, a like a indirect or artifact type 
uh, uh, thing that you saw due to another disease process that you're not really affecting at all. You've basically buffed the chart. You put some polish on it, took your microfiber tile out, buffed the chart, made them look good on paper, but you didn't actually affect their health trajectory because the vitamin D level itself was representative of something else that was going on, perhaps inflammation, perhaps some other disease process. Yeah, I find this, we, we talked about this at length on the vitamin D podcast, but I continue to find it so interesting how many people view vitamin D as being so critically important to supplement and taking it the levels up while also harping either for certain interventions or against quote unquote modern medicine for like failing to get at quote the root cause of certain diseases and things like that. Meanwhile, <laughs> it's like most of these people who you may be talking to who may have vitamin D levels that are just a little below the normal range or at the low end of the normal range or outright low. So many of them are low because of obesity and excess body fat and and uh, untreated sleep apnea and you know chronic inflammatory stuff from from other conditions and and making that number go up with a supplement isn't isn't the move and you are uh, uh, failing to treat the underlying cause as it were which is just kind of an interesting observation <laughs> yeah you you would think and particularly in the case of vitamin D if it had this big robust effect that taking people who were low in vitamin D supplementing them with vitamin D you would see an improvement in a number of health outcomes that are associated with low vitamin D status. But in fact, you do not see that at all across the board, which just points to this more complex, like underlying pathology. It's like the reason the vitamin D level is low had little to do with, in general, uh, the intake or lack of supplementation, but rather something else nefarious going on uh, under the hood. So in, in lots of cases, that is true. <laughs> yep. So we're going to focus on the effect of multivitamins on three things here. Thing one heart disease or ASCVD. We'll talk about that and define that shortly. We're going to talk about its relationship to cancer risk reduction and cancer-related mortality. And we're also going to talk about multivitamin use and performance because this is the Barbell Medicine Podcast. We're interested in getting jacked and strong and superhuman performance. So we'll talk about multivitamins in that context. But first, let's start with ASCVD. So Austin, you want to give our listeners just a brief review of like, what is ASCVD? Why do we use that term sometimes instead of heart disease? And uh, what are we going to talk about here? Yeah, there's, turns out there's a lot of different ways hearts can become diseased. Uh, there can be issues with the heart muscle, with the blood flow to the heart, with the electrical system, with the valves. So there's tons of different, you know, saying heart disease to somebody who works with patients who have hearts like I do doesn't really mean very much. In most cases, I recognize that what most people are meaning when they say heart disease is this idea of atherosclerosis, which is just um, kind of what also has been described in lay terms as like kind of a hardening of the arteries or people will talk about blockages and things like that, leading to things like heart attacks. Um, it's the same process that can lead to strokes and, and, and lots of other uh, cardiovascular issues throughout the body. And so one of uh, the most common things that I see on a daily basis continues to be um, up there uh, right alongside cancer uh, um, as the leading causes of death, both in the U.S. and worldwide. And is that's, you know, one of the because it continues to be the leading cause. Um, that's why we put so much emphasis on it and talking about things like blood pressure and cholesterol and exercise and sleep and stress management and all this other kind of stuff that we emphasize for uh, lifestyle interventions to um, reduce people's risk of the most common cause of death worldwide. And so, you know, this particular new guideline that prompted us to record this podcast, the ways in which they uh, analyzed the question of do multivitamins help is one is, uh, did it uh, improve or reduce the risk of heart disease related complications? Um, and the other is through cancer. And that's kind of uh, informed the lens through which we're discussing this topic today. 
Yeah. So with respect to heart disease or ASCVD, some experts have hypothesized that using a multivitamin might reduce the, the incidence of cardiovascular disease. So just reducing the amount of people who get any type of ASCVD uh, and or rates of deaths from this disease process, uh, perhaps due to correcting an underlying deficiency in certain nutrients that if left untreated would increase something like blood pressure or negatively affect the lipids uh, of an individual or otherwise increase the risk of developing cardiovascular disease. Uh, so let's take a look at the data. Um, the women's health study prospectively followed a group of women, about 37,000 um, that were aged 45 and older. The mean age was 54 years old uh, who either used or did not use multivitamins. About 38% used a multivitamin and about 62% uh, did not use a multivitamin. They followed them for an average of 16.2 years. And this study measured rates of major cardiovascular events, including heart attack, stroke, and death from cardiovascular disease. Uh, neither the baseline use nor changes in the use of multivitamins over the study period were associated with changes in the long-term risk of major cardiovascular events, heart attack, stroke, cardiac revascularizations, or death from cardiovascular disease. That's a long-winded way of saying that multivitamin use at baseline. So people who use multivitamins when they started the study period or started using multivitamins throughout the study period or did not use multivitamins at any point during the study period, there was no difference in the you know relationship uh, or the risk of developing cardiovascular disease or having a severe uh, adverse cardio cardiac event. Uh, another study, which is a randomized controlled trial have, with 1,700 plus uh, subjects aged 50 and older who had a heart attack at least six weeks prior to the, the start of the study, uh, they randomized these folks to either take a multivitamin containing 27 nutrients uh, for a median of three years, or they took a placebo uh, plus their standard medications. The study's goal was to determine whether the multivitamin supplement reduced the risk of additional cardiovascular events or death, and they found no difference in between those taking the placebo, uh, those taking the uh, multivitamin. So again, no real effect of multivitamins uh, for folks who had recently had a uh, major adverse cardiac event like a heart attack in this particular case. A recent meta-analysis of nine randomized controlled trials, uh, this was done in 2021 and did not include the studies uh, that I just talked about, uh, evaluated the use of multivitamins, which were defined as products that included most vitamins and minerals. Uh, by uh, 22,000 plus individuals. Uh, and they evaluated a variety of cardiovascular disease outcomes, including total cardiovascular disease incidence and death, uh, heart attack uh, incidence and death from heart attacks, and stroke incidence and death from strokes, and all-cause mortality. Uh, in this meta-analysis, multivitamin use did not alter the risk of any of these outcomes compared to those who did not use uh, multivitamins. Uh, and one of the more interesting studies, it's called the COCO Supplement and Multivitamin Outcome Study, the COSMOS study, was a clinical trial that investigated whether multivitamins might help prevent cancer and cardiovascular disease in both men and women. This study randomly assigned 8,776 men aged 60 years and older and 12,666 women aged 65 years and older to take uh, Centrum Silver, so multivitamin, 500 milligrams of COCO flavanols. Uh, or both, or placebos, 
for 3.6 years. The multivitamin supplementation did not reduce any cardiovascular events such as heart attacks or strokes, death from cardiovascular disease, or all-cause mortality. The supplemental cocoa flavonoids did have some interesting benefits uh, on outcomes, but those were not related to cardiovascular disease or cancer generation and are thus outside the scope of this podcast. So altogether, the data on multivitamin use and heart disease, what would you what would you take from that, Austin? Yeah, I think that back in 2014, which was the last iteration of this U.S. Preventative Services Task Force guideline, they basically found insufficient evidence to recommend for or against multivitamin supplementation for this purpose. And that's a very common kind of outcome of their evidence synthesis in a lot of areas. Basically, if they do not find consistent replicated you know evidence pointing in a particular ev- uh, direction that shows benefit that outweighs harms then they are not going to recommend for something and similarly if they do not see you know uh, concerning signals for harm that outweighs benefit they will not outright recommend against something um, meaning that when you have large bodies of evidence or which is what is first required for them to actually do any you know review a topic at all but when the outcomes are pointing in all kinds of different directions then they'll just come down and say give it a class I recommend basically say there's not enough evidence for us to say do this or don't do this because it's like we just have a whole lot of data but it's pointing on a lot of different directions and so basically what that ends up meaning is that uh it the, the what you actually do in practice with a patient in front of you ends up being kind of an individualized discussion of like what are even the potential or theoretical benefits of this thing what are the potential and theoretical harms and is that worth it to you to to do something like that and what do you think I tend to lean much more on the skeptical side that uh, broadly speaking for kind of like, again, all comers, any any person coming in who is apparently healthy, non-pregnant uh, adult um, without any, you know, uh, other uh, concerns or signs or symptoms of, of, uh, of disease to tell them that, hey, I feel confident enough to recommend that you take a multivitamin for reducing the risk of cardiovascular disease, any of these things, be it heart attack, stroke, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't think that that is worth doing compared to so many other things that we have much, much, much more compelling evidence uh, um, from a consistency standpoint, from an effect size standpoint. Like I can make so many stronger arguments for things that you should do to reduce your cardiovascular risk um, than this. Uh, And so that is, this is not something that is part of my practice when talking to patients to say that you should be doing this. Um, Of course, there are very, you know, unique patient specific situations where it's like you are at such high risk of, of a particular vitamin or nutrient deficiency where we'd be having a different conversation about supplementation. And I would add the caveat that is that conversation is still typically not going to be couched in the, in the frame of like, Hey, we're doing this to reduce your heart, your heart disease risk. Um, but in general, not really recommending this with any, on any consistent basis, uh, to people for this particular outcome. Yeah. I, I think in general, when people are excited about taking ownership of their own like health trajectory, I'm excited too. Cause I'm like, cool. Now we get to like do some stuff. You're, you're ready and willing to get on the behavior change bandwagon. Let's go. And I, I just don't want to waste people's effort on a multivitamin. Not that this is like a huge, uh, you know, thing for a lot of folks to do. They'll go out, get a multivitamin, they'll take it, you know, maybe adherence would be good. Uh, and, and again, it's not too big of an ask, but it's like, man, if that takes even a little bit of their capacity away from like following a generally health promoting diet that's rich in fiber and lean protein and a variety of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, et cetera, exercise, not smoking, you know, things of that nature, or they think that, oh, well, since I'm taking a multivitamin, maybe I can like get away with not doing some of these other things. I think 
that's just something I, I, I wouldn't be on board with. I mean, it, a multivitamin would be so, so far down the list of like things that I would even consider recommending. I, I think I'd probably try to talk most people out of taking a multivitamin, to be honest. If they felt super strongly about taking it, they're like, I just really like it. It makes me feel better. At least I think so. And, and you know, whatever. I'm like, well, if it's, you know, USP certified and, uh, or, you know, third-party tested and CGMP accredited, like, okay, like, I, I don't think it's helping you, but like, I'm, I'm happy if, if you want to continue doing it. I just don't know that it's helping you at all. And that's kind of where I fall, especially with respect to like heart disease. I'm like, I don't think it's doing anything. Correct. Yeah. I'm, I'm inclined to agree. Uh, definitely would not want doing something like this to take uh, away or, or lead somebody to be less likely to engage in something that we know has a much more potent effect on these really important outcomes. Yeah. It, it's, to me, it's like, it's almost like stretching, right? Like what people are like, should I stretch? And it's like, all right, we have a finite amount of resources and time in the gym or like that you can dedicate to physical activity. And it's like, if you're going to spend 20 minutes doing quote unquote mobility, and that's taken away from your like time to do stuff that we know actually like helps, man, I don't know that. I don't know that that's like a good trade-off. I mean, obviously it's not a, a, a great comparison because taking a multivitamin doesn't take that much time. They're relatively inexpensive and the risks in general are relatively low, but it's like, well, yeah, but if it's not helping, like what why, why are we really doing it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that was the heart disease segment. We're going to move now to the cancer segment. And so before we even get into this, this is probably my favorite question that I had teed up for you. <laughs> it's like, what is cancer? And as a second part to that, why does, when folks say something like, oh, this thing that you do or can take or whatever reduces the risk of cancer or prevents cancer, why is that silly? Uh, yeah, I think that um, cancer is uh, definitely a uh, – it's presented and discussed as a monolith, as as one condition, kind of like earlier when we just said heart disease and I listed out like six different categories of ways that hearts can become diseased, which themselves all have many, many, many subcategories of particular diseases. And and the reason or the utility of these different diagnoses, right? So, so why this is – going to get a little bit philosophical, I guess, from a, from a medical standpoint, but like, what is the point of a diagnosis? What is the utility of a diagnosis? It is, um, that when you have established that particular diagnostic label, it should ideally lead to a, uh, targeted or specific intervention that then modifies that condition, modifies the health trajectory of the person with that condition. This is also why you, you know, sometimes you'll hear doctors or you'll hear say like, if, if you have, or if you're weighing, you know, two different diagnoses and they have the exact same treatment or management or whatever, then I don't really care what the particular label is. And this comes up in back pain all the time. People are like, you know, do I have uh, arthritis in my back or do I have a bulging disc in my back or do I have whatever? And it's like, look, if you have back pain and you don't have these like red flag signs or symptoms, we're not worried about some sort of ominous underlying pathology, then we're going to say you have back pain. And I can, I care less about that. But when it comes to things that do require very specific different changes in what we do or how we do it, that's when a diagnostic label becomes much more important, right? So if I say, you know, you have a tumor in the spine, you know, what I, which is what I think is contributing to the back pain versus just you have this kind of what we call general nonspecific back pain that's going to lead towards two different management strategies. And so the same thing applies to cancer. Cancer is often discussed and presented again as a monolith as this one giant thing, whereas cancer is probably like infinite different, <laughs> different things. So you could even make, you know, an argument that like 
every single tumor is unique uh, from a genetic standpoint, from a, how they how they behave, how they attack, how they spread or don't, et cetera, et cetera. And so there are so many different broadly speaking, types of cancers that can be divided any number of ways. You can divide it by organ system, you can divide it by solid tumor, you know, blood, liquid tumors, all these different kinds of things. And there is utility. There's, it's a, there's an important reason why these are all differentiated because each of them has a different treatment approach to them and identifying the type of tumor. This is why people get things like biopsies done or things like that to, to figure out what is this tumor, what are its unique, you know, uh, makeup so that we can target it as, as best we can. And so the idea that in such a heterogeneous, really broad uh, uh, kind of category of disease, that's like, oh, you just do this one thing and like you'll prevent cancer. Kind of, kind of silly. You're right. It's a super nebulous, vague description. Instead, it would, you know, be more useful to consider what types of cancers are we modifying. So, for example, we know that obesity, carrying excess body fat for very long periods of time, can increase the risk of many different cancers, which have been identified, but not all cancers. Um, whereas others, it's like if you don't have this very particular genetic mutation, then this cancer ain't going to happen in you. For example, um, so these have different causes, different contributors, different modifying factors. So not one condition, a whole bunch of different conditions. And so as a result, just kind of from the outset, the idea of just like, I'm going to pop a multivitamin and prevent, broadly speaking, hand wave cancer is is a stretch for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think also that contributes to why reading some of this literature and certainly conveying it, it can be a little dry at points because you're like, okay, so this group of people took a multivitamin in this for this particular uh, uh, subject and this group didn't. And, uh, here was their change in risk of esophageal cancer, bladder cancer, liver, ca- like all these different types. And people are like, well, what about cancer in general? I'm like, well, there is no cancer in general. Yeah. There it reminds me types. of a, it reminds me of the, I think it was a research review episode that we did a few months back when there was this hot new paper about vitamin D supplementation and just like preventing quote autoimmune disease. And we, yeah, like, right, tore, yeah, yeah. we, we like tore into that paper because it was like, what the hell is that? There's like so many different kinds. And when we dug into it, you know, people can reference that, that episode or we can try to try to find it to, to, uh, to link again, but it was the same kind of thing. It's like, there's no such thing as just one, you know, autoimmune disease that we just like prevent. It's a very complicated, you know, heterogeneous category of things. And the idea that these this set of conditions, which have different diagnostic labels for a reason, because all these diseases are caused by different things, they have different biological behavior, and they have different treatments, the idea that just you take one thing, and it's going to fix all of them, again, extremely implausible. Um, So that's kind of where we're starting from the outset here. Yep. So with respect to cancer, some experts have hypothesized that using a multivitamin may reduce cancer risk or improve cancer outcomes, um, because certain nutrients and multivitamins might inhibit the formation of new cancers. So that's called carcinogenesis or tumor progression. And so you've got to go look at the data. Now, most of the studies on this are observational and it basically examine the association between multivitamin use and specific cancer types and cancer related deaths. There's not a lot of randomized controlled trials where, you know, a, a group of folks with a particular type of cancer take a multivitamin and the others don't. Um, some of that would be unethical to, to do. You could do a case control uh, study, uh, something like that. But the idea that if you thought something was going to help <laughs> and then you weren't going to give it to everybody, is like, how are you going to get that past the IRB? But you can do case control studies. Um, and so let's, let's look at what the data actually says. So we go back to the Women's Health Initiative. Um, this was a study that uh, evaluated the health of 160 thousand postmenopausal women aged 50 to 79 and the risk factors for cancer, heart disease, and osteoporosis. Uh, about 41% of the women took some type of multivitamin supplement at least once a week. Um, after eight years, the investigators found no association between the use of these multivitamins um, 
uh, and a change in uh, and any change in risk of any common cancer or total cancers or total mortality from cancers. Um, if we go back to the Cosmo study, so that's the cocoa supplement and multivitamin outcome study. That's the group that got like the Centrum Silver and the cocoa extract. Um, found that in twenty thousand adults, sixty and over, multivitamin supplementation did not reduce any demonstrable uh, 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 amount of total invasive cancers. So there are multiple different types of cancers and they didn't find any signal there that multivitamin use helped. Um, a recent meta-analysis of eight studies uh, that included uh, 355,000 women aged 20 to 79 taking multivitamins for at least three years. Uh, they found that even after using uh, multivitamins daily for at least 10 years prior to the study period, the women had the same exact risk of breast cancer as the non-users. And interestingly, uh, one study in this meta-analysis actually found a 19% higher risk of breast cancer uh, in a, a small subpopulation uh, of Swedish women who reported uh, taking a multivitamin um, on average of uh, nine and a half years, which is the first time we've actually seen maybe some harm um, potential from taking a multivitamin. Uh, there was another large prospective study that investigated the association between the use of multivitamin and the risk of cancer. Uh, they followed almost 500,000 men and women aged 50 to 71 for 16 years. Uh, men and women who reported taking uh, more than one multivitamin daily at the beginning of the study um, did have a lower risk of developing colon cancer, which is the first time we've actually seen a potential benefit here. Uh, but overall, men had a 2% higher risk of developing any type of cancer, uh, including a 3% higher risk of developing prostate cancer, an 8% higher risk of lung cancer, and a 16% higher risk of leukemia, uh, which increased even further if they took more than one multivitamin daily. Um, among women, uh, taking a, multivit a daily multivitamin did not affect their overall risk of developing uh, any type of cancer that they were testing for in this study, except for oropharyngeal cancers, that's of the mouth and throat, uh, which actually increased by 46%. So these are some kind of scary results that we're looking at. We're like, oh man, these people are taking these vitamins and that sometimes it increases the risk of cancer. And again, it should be noted that these are observational studies, so it's certainly not implying a causal role, but, uh, a role here of multivitamins increasing the risk, but certainly the correlation is uh, interesting because people say, well, what's the, what's the risk? What's, what's the possible harm here? We're like, well, if it's not doing anything good for you and there's maybe some risk of it doing something bad for you, maybe we got to think a little bit harder about why we're using these things. And it's not terribly surprising that we see results pointing in multiple different directions. I mean, again, I, the way I come at this question um, is that we have a kind of a low baseline probability. Like I'm starting out from a point of skepticism just based on, again, cancer being like this gigantic, very heterogeneous thing that the idea that supplementing with a multivitamin, quote unquote, whatever, again, that is accounting for differences in formulation and dosage and things like that is going to have a substantial impact on, again, that broad cancer uh, uh, diagnosis. The probability of that is low. And so in that kind of a situation, I'm unsurprised, particularly when observational data start pointing in all kinds of different directions, even randomized trial evidence, we might see things like small effects pointing in multiple different directions. And that might lead to something like one of these insufficient evidence to recommend for or against because we're not seeing super consistent, super strong evidence pointing in a very particular direction, either increasing or decreasing risk. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of the way I come at this question, always looking at interpreting um, the, the overall body of literature, overall body of research and 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 having that impact your confidence kind of proportionate to the strength of that evidence and kind of where you're starting from. Yep. We see this, this, a similar relationship with mortality. Um, basically you look at the data on that, there's really no evidence showing that taking a multivitamin, either baseline or long-term, 
um, actually reduces the risk of premature mortality. Um, no real, no real risk there that it's increasing mortality. Uh, there is some data on psychiatric diseases, but the studies were very, very small. So only when you pull them all together, can you get any type of signal, but because the studies were so small, I'm not very confident in the outcomes of those, uh, of those particular studies. But the point here is like, we have failed to identify like a robust, repeatable, therefore reliable signal that taking a multivitamin somehow improves the health trajectory uh, for heart disease and, and or cancer, um, or it improve, reduces the risk of people developing these things in the first place. And, and interestingly, the, the new USPSTF guideline found pretty consistent evidence that there was an increase in a particular type of cancer, lung cancer in this case, when Folks were supplementing with beta carotene, especially when it was combined with vitamin A. And many of these multivitamins have both of those things in there. So I wasn't able to find any like data where they were like, oh, this is a multivitamin without beta carotene, without vitamin A. And this is another multivitamin with vitamin A and beta carotene. Let's look at like the cancer rates over time. I haven't seen any of that like, you know, subgroup analysis or like really kind of nuanced approach to looking at this. But when you're taking all this data together, Austin, like what is your verdict on the relationship between multivitamins? and health if we were restricting that to just heart disease and cancer? Well, so to start off here, I'm just going to quote a section from this kind of evidence synthesis where they said that 84 randomized controlled trials and six cohort studies suggest that most vitamin and mineral supplements provide no clinically important protective effects for cardiovascular disease, cancer, or all-cause mortality in healthy adults without known nutritional deficiencies. Um, and so there are some caveats and, and exceptions and limitations and things like that that are all hashed out in the, in the evidence summary. Um, but I'm inclined to agree with that broadly speaking. Again, if I'm having somebody who kind of like the population we talk about when it comes to screening tests, people who look fine, feel fine, have no complaints, um, and, and I'm not identifying like, oh, you have major risk factors for this particular deficiency or you have this sign or symptom that could be attributable to this particular deficiency – I have a very hard time, you know, elevating recommendation of a multivitamin uh, in my in my clinical discussion with this person high enough to even compete or hang with any of the other things that I'm much more likely to discuss with people like, hey, let's make sure your blood pressure is under control. Let's check your blood lipids. Let's make sure, you know, you're eating, you know, this, the kind of diet that we've discussed in most of our podcasts so far. Let's make sure you're getting enough physical activity, sleep, all these other kind of things where it's like, I feel way more confident in those things having a major impact on your quality of life and health trajectory and mortality risk and things like that compared with like, it's, it, it, if I have limited time to have this kind of a conversation with somebody, this is not even coming anywhere near important enough to, to bring up in this particular kind of person. Now, somebody comes in and they tell me like, hey, I underwent gastric bypass surgery 10 years ago and I'm not taking anything at all. It's like, well, you're at high risk of a bunch of different deficiencies that we should be thinking about. Or you have, you know, this inflammatory bowel disease. We need to be thinking about that. Or I had a bunch of my gut resected or I have cystic fibrosis or I have, you know, other conditions that we know dramatically increase the risk of certain deficiencies. Yeah, suddenly the uh, importance uh, of discussing vitamin and mineral supplementation becomes much, much, much higher on my priority list to the point where it's like, hey, suddenly this may be even more important right now than talking about some of those other things uh, um, in, in, in comparison. So the context, the clinical context matters a ton here. Um, and so that's kind of how I think about it. For most of the people who I would guess are probably listening, who are generally healthy and fitness interested and motivated and on, and hopefully meeting many of our kind of recommendations for health and things like that, 
I have a hard time saying, yeah, this is worth your time and effort to take a multivitamin to reduce your risk of heart disease um, or cancer incidence compared to like, you know, if you go to the seven health priorities article on our website, like, Hey, let's make sure you're like not you know, ch- checking all those off a hundred percent before this even comes up on your radar to think about uh, at all. Well, yeah. Well, you, well people are going to say, they're like, all right, Baraki, I, I hear, I hear what you're trying to say, but why, or when you can end, all right, I'm doing, <laughs> I'm doing all of those things. Why not take a multivitamin? What, how do you respond to that? I, at that point, I care way less about whether you choose to take a multivitamin or not. I'm not going to go out of my way to persuade you against it outside of, Hey, I at least have evidence to say, maybe don't bother taking beta carotene or vitamin or vitamin E being the things that they specifically recommend against for people, you know, again, broadly speaking outside of any disease specific considerations that may come up. If you insist, then like you said, kind of like the stretching thing. It's like, bro, I do not care if you choose to stretch. But I, again, as far as like, where are my priorities for you? I'm not elevating this beyond a certain level of importance. And once you've checked off all these other boxes, you want to do that. Cool, man. Live your life. Do what you want. All right. So I don't want people to be afraid of vitamin E, especially if they have certain conditions. Is there any reason why people should be taking vitamin E? Uh, so I'm not prepared to make very strong recommendations to people uh, uh, on this podcast who are not my patient, but there are certain situations where uh, vitamin E is being studied and there may be some signals for benefit. And in particular, those relate to fatty liver disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or what is now starting to be called more metabolic associated uh, uh, liver disease. Um where you have fat accumulation in the liver itself, and that can lead to inflammation and scarring, and it can lead to things like cirrhosis and insulin resistance, uh, uh, increases heart disease risk, diabetes risk, things like that. So there's some evidence for benefit of vitamin E in fatty liver disease, um, particularly with respect to some modest improvements in lowering some of the blood markers of inflammation in the liver, modest improvements in liver fat uh, uh, levels, modest improvements in blood cholesterol levels. And this is a really complicated field as well, because vitamin E is also not one thing. There are different types of kind of like subtypes of vitamin E, tocopherols, tocotrienols. There are subtypes of all of those. And as you might expect, given that like what you said with multivitamins, they're not standardized. The studies on vitamin E use in this particular context, they don't. Uh, always differentiate. Uh, They don't necessarily uh, use consistent dosage ranges, things like that. So teasing apart what is the actual active kind of mediator of benefit is is pretty tricky. But alpha tocopherol, which is the most common kind of form of vitamin E, um, has been recommended in like liver disease guidelines for patients with fatty liver disease who have biopsy proven you know, inflammation in the liver, um, which is a minority, probably almost no one listening to the podcast is in that situation, but it's something that can be considered. But when I zoom out in practice and I'm talking to somebody who has fatty liver disease or NASH, the hepatitis inflammation of the liver, vitamin E may be part of the conversation, but again, it's like the effects that we see from that pale in comparison to the effects that we see. If it's like, Hey, can I get like five, 7.5, preferably upwards of 10% weight loss with this person mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I would expect to dwarf this, this effect of supplementing with vitamin E in this situation. Yeah. So again, that's like where my priorities are. Um, but again, it's worth mentioning caveats like this, because again, the USPSDF guideline is for generally healthy, you know, adults who don't have these other conditions. There's evidence, either insufficient evidence for or against multivitamins. There's evidence, there was enough evidence for them to recommend against beta carotene and vitamin E, but it's not like there's never a role for these things in any situation. They're, they're, there are almost always exceptions in, in medicine. It's real complicated stuff. So we've talked about health. 
health implications, broadly speaking, um, with respect to multivitamin use. But what about performance? And again, we're here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. We're trying to talk about multivitamin use and, and, you know, is this good for gains? And so, you know, if we wanted to answer this question to see if a multivitamin would be good for gains, one, is there a scientific rationale for a potential positive impact on performance? Two, is it possible that the supplement can have an adverse effect on health or performance in the short and the long term? And three, does the athlete actually need it? All right. So as far as why we might suspect there could be a potentially positive effect, if the athletes were at a higher risk for deficiency, so if you had an athlete, for example, um, who had a malabsorptive disease or a particular medical condition where their absorption or uh, blood levels of certain vitamins and minerals were otherwise compromised, you could make a case like, hey, multivitamin and or other uh, uh, sort of supplementation may be useful. But you as their coach would probably not be managing that. So outside of that, you'd have to make the case that the athlete who is otherwise healthy no chronic medical conditions um, that would affect absorption and, and storage and, and otherwise nutrient uptake um, would be at risk of deficiency. Um, so that's that's maybe the one way uh, that a multivitamin could be uh, potentially beneficial. Uh, but the argument you hear more commonly is that athletes need higher levels of certain vitamins due to an increased use during activity or increased metabolism or clearance of these vitamins during activity. So it's like, oh, I'm using all this vitamin B6 to, you know, move protein around, uh, for example. And so because I'm an athlete and I'm so active, I need to take more vitamin B6. And so then you just got to go look at the data. So one, are there any athletes that are at risk um, of nutrient deficiency? And in general, Athletes as like a whole population, which again, this is not monolithic, but if we're just in generally re uh, referring to athletes, they seem to have lower risk of deficiency compared to the general population. Why? Their dietary patterns tend to be uh, more health promoting. They also tend to be younger and they also tend to have more uh, like healthy behaviors. For example, they don't tend to smoke. They don't tend to have substance abuse disorders at, the, at, at high rates as the general population, um, all sorts of things. There are exceptions. So Athletes with either low energy availability or REDS, right, relative energy deficiency syndrome, those folks would be at higher risk. But now we're talking about a very small subsection of athletes. Okay. Uh, as far as the evidence for our ath do athletes need more micronutrients, the studies on this are relatively sparse. And that's kind of what you would expect because this is very difficult to measure. What you'd need to do is you'd have to get a representative sample of athletes. You'd have to measure their baseline levels, which as we discussed for all these different nutrients is different. You can't just take a blood level and be like, okay, cool. We got all of this stuff now. You have to do it for each specific vitamin. Um, and then you have to evaluate what's happening in real time when they exercise. Like, are these levels dropping? Are they increasing? Are they stabilizing? Um, and then what do they do after exercise? And that's just the short term. What about long-term? What about after months and months and months or years, in fact, of training? And so there are relatively few studies on this, but the studies that have looked at this and actually have done a good job show that maybe for vitamin B6 and riboflavin, there's like an increased need. However, there's no increased risk of deficiency with folks being physically active, meaning that you don't see a higher than normal prevalence of B6 or riboflavin deficiency. And the other vitamins that were actually investigated, which is another 17 uh, vitamins that uh, and minerals that, uh, uh, as I recall off the top of my head, uh, didn't show a clear increased need when actual levels were assessed compared to insufficiently active controls. So it doesn't appear that athletes actually need more. I've heard that all the time. It's like, oh, well, I'm super active and I sweat a lot, so I need more vitamins. It's like, why though? Don't you think that your body is set up in a way 
with multiple redundant homeostatic mechanisms that would allow you to survive and thrive even in you know adverse <laughs> environments so that you may live on and pass your genes on like <laughs> we had to be active before guy like you know the 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 evolutionary pressure uh, has has kind of done some good things for us and then uh with respect to adverse effects so that you know you've moved on like is there a potentially positive effect probably not from deficiency unless somebody's got low energy availability reds or like another uh medical condition that messes with their absorption which again now you're referring to like very specific previously determined issues that again you're probably not managing as a coach um certainly not on your own if you happen to have one of these things um are there potential adverse effects Eh, I'm not so worried about like, what are the bad things that can happen from taking a multivitamin? Um, yeah, if it's got beta carotene or vitamin E in it, I think we've got some decent evidence to suggest probably don't take a multivitamin that has those two things. But there have been case reports of cross-contaminations in these products with D-Ball and Winstrol. Uh, that actually, uh, a number of athletes in both Germany and Spain, where these were sold over the counter, pop positive on WADA drug tests. And so, and it's from their multivitamin. So they all re, re, uh, received reduced sentences because normally it's two or four year ban from your sport, but because they actually found that the agent, you know, that can, that was contaminated and it was a multivitamin, they got a reduced sentence at just a year, but like that's happened. Um, also, uh, this huge company called farm tech in 2017, there was a, a Burkholderia, uh, bacterial infection. All these people ended up with sepsis. <laughs> it's like, that's pretty for a multivitamin? Yeah. For a multivitamin with like really no potential to improve performance or health outcomes <laughs> unless you have one of these very serious conditions. Uh, yeah. So in any case, I'm not really concerned about the adverse effects. Although again, it's like, why? Um, I would just make sure that people are taking a CGMP certified or accredited supplement that should be on the label. Just means that they uh, follow the uh, good manufacturing processes that are registered and that are also third-party tested. So batch tested, usually they could be USP, they could be NSF, informed consent or informed for sport. We use the latter for all of our supplements, for example. So I'm not really too concerned about the adverse effects, but again, there have been some case reports. And uh, if I were a WADA tested athlete, like going to the Olympics or something like that, I wouldn't risk it for the biscuit with multivitamins. It's like, Bro, you got D ball in your multivitamin. That's why you like this one so much. I'm like, <laughs> I knew, I knew something was up. Um, and then finally, as far as the actual like evidence on performance outcomes, the current evidence is sparse. So basically, especially with respect to resistance training and anaerobic performance, um, there's one available study on resistance training. Uh, basically, they had these folks do like anaerobic like Wingate sprints on a bike and squats, and then supplement with. A multivitamin for eight weeks or placebo and then come back and do it again and looked at their performance and there was no difference even that like study design is not great you're like okay so just one workout like that i don't know that i'd be able to detect a signal especially if this if the study was relatively small but no improvement in performance there there was a meta-analysis on eight studies uh, looking at specifically vitamin c and e and resistance training performance and that showed no benefit in strength gain um there are a few studies uh, showing a benefit of multivitamin supplementation with very prolonged like ultra endurance events or tactical events. These are like military operations where people are like out in the field for weeks and weeks and weeks on end and have really limited like dietary uh, uh, patterns. So basically they're going to be, they're at high risk for deficiency. And that makes sense. Like if you are at risk of deficiency and you would otherwise become deficient, like taking a multivitamin may be useful. But for most folks who are eating, you know, a health promoting diet and don't have like a malabsorption disease and are eating enough calories, like 
you're probably fine. And I want to go back to that eating enough calories thing. If you're losing a little bit of weight at a time, you're on like a calorie restricted diet and you're losing a little bit of weight at a time. That's not you. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the people who are at risk of like malnourishment, like the people who are eating, you know, 300, 400, 500 calories a day, like border, like starvation type stuff. Those folks are at high risk of being um, deficient. But you know, if you're eating a few hundred calories per day deficit, I'm not really worried about being deficient in vitamin and minerals. Um, unless again, you have to eat a very, very restricted diet. Uh, quick, quick question to the, to the, uh, uh, to coach Baraki over here. Do you think that people who eat like a carnivore type diet are at higher risk of deficiency compared to those that like following like a plant-based diet? Uh, if I had to guess over a long enough time span, then yes, I, I think that um, there are certain things with any heavily, heavily, heavily restrictive dietary pattern. Like for example, if somebody's like, I'm literally only going to eat ribeye for the rest of my life, there are certain things that will necessarily be absent from your diet. In the same way that you know the carnivores are very quick to point out that hey, if it's like if you go very strict vegan or something like that, that you're going to have a hard time, say, getting enough vitamin B12 and you may need to supplement that and that it becomes potentially beneficial for them to supplement B12 becomes part of their argument against veganism in general. And it's like, well, I can kind of flip that in certain ways and suggest that, you know, over the very long term, eating literally nothing but meat, um, there are certain things that are necessarily going to be absent that I would, uh, uh, if I were to, in some bizarro alternate reality, be following a carnivore diet, I would be probably supplementing alongside my 100% meat intake. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my, my take on that. I would supplement my 100% meat intake with carbohydrates. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, multivitamins from a performance standpoint may be useful when dietary intake is limited for a prolonged period of time. Think about weeks, not just like hours <laughs> or, you know, uh, or maybe even like a day or two, but prolonged sort of restricted diets. Again, if you're in the field for weeks and weeks and weeks with limited food options, or if you're doing an ultra endurance event, that's going to last a really, really long time. Uh, one hats off. Cause that's wild. I could never imagine doing that, but then two, maybe a multivitamin would be useful. So then the question, the, the $8 billion question, Austin, are vitamins good for anything? I mean, just that question at face value. Yeah, they, they are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just the question of like, you know, is supplementing with them, broadly speaking, for all comers, like healthy, asymptomatic people with no signs, symptoms of disease, this like catchphrase that I feel like I keep saying. No, I don't feel like we have super strong evidence to recommend that. I think that there are, and and again, I am not saying that I never recommend somebody take a multivitamin, but it is a much more um, targeted intervention when I have much clearer evidence of either high risk for deficiency or overt complications of deficiency um, compared with saying, ah, just, you know, take it as an insurance policy or something, which is kind of like a common uh, refrain that you, that you hear from folks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, again, I agree. Don't really have evidence for this, you know, supplementing, um, you know, at large. And in fact, no like government health agency uh, in a, in a developed country or private health group or health professional organization in a developed country promotes regular use of multivitamins. Nobody's like, yeah, you should take a vitamin just to be, just to be sure. If you're in an underdeveloped country, that, that may change. Or, or again, if you're part of like these very specialized groups. So for example, if you are uh, a woman of childbearing age, so you can become pregnant, you're trying to become pregnant, you are pregnant. We have multiple national and international organizations that are recommending 
taking a multivitamin. Um, the CDC, the 2020 to 2025 Dietary Guidelines for Americans, the USPSTF, the World Health Organization all recommend that people capable of becoming pregnant consume 400 micrograms per day of folic acid from fortified foods or a supplement to reduce the risk of neural tube defects. This is the critical period is like a month before you actually know you're pregnant. Uh, like you just you need to be taking it. Um, and yeah, it does seem like that actually reduces the risk of neural tube defects. Although I will tell you, and you don't have to tell Lorraine this, and she won't listen this far into the podcast, but the data on that is not great. The data is pooled from many different locations, for example. Um, and so when you include uh, countries uh, like low to middle income countries in Africa and Asia, as well as Mexico, where malnutrition and micronutrient deficiencies are more common, you see this signal, this like effect of, oh, if you take folic acid or a perinatal vitamin or prenatal vitamin, you see a reduced risk of complications during pregnancy, for example. But if you just look at like well-developed countries, like in the UK or the US, you don't see any signal. And so it's like, is this just like a stopgap? Like, do we, do we really need to be recommending this? And I don't have an opinion on that. I just, that is what I would expect that if you are at high risk of deficiency, that you're going to see a more robust effect. And that's kind of what we've been saying this whole time. If you're at high risk of deficiency, using the supplement is likely to help, but I don't know that you need to be recommending it across the board. Of course, ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, is saying, yeah, take a, you can take a prenatal vitamin, uh, particularly one that includes folic acid. Um, and I'm not, I'm not challenging them on that. I just – Yeah, and, and, and additionally, I think that's also a situation where um, it's kind of like a, almost a pragmatic recommendation insofar as uh, what – is the gravity of morbidity with the with the downside here? It's like a much bigger deal if this is a problem for somebody. Um, whereas for you know the general adult population, kind of the calculus is a little bit different. Yeah, what's at stake, right? Yeah, like yeah. okay, you took a little extra folic acid, like so what? If yeah. that look, if that if that prenatal vitamin happened to be like tainted with like D ball and Winstrol, like <laughs> pro- probably not great. But um, yeah, so there are certainly the, the that population. So. Uh, uh, people capable of becoming pregnant, uh, would, would benefit from a prenatal vitamin, particularly one that, uh, contains folic acid people again with malabsorptive diseases. So Crohn's celiac people, history of gi- uh, gastric bypass surgery, cystic fibrosis, a number of other, uh, disease processes that can otherwise put people at risk of a nutrient deficiency. Even if they're eating a health promoting diet, those folks would all probably benefit from a multivitamin and then folks with a uh, poor PO intake. So people who just don't eat that much or eat a very, very restricted diet. So some like raw vegans or even vegans in general likely benefit from a B12 supplement, for example, heavily, like you mentioned with the the keto or carnivore question, heavily restricted dietary patterns. Uh, people who are uh, living in like a skilled nursing facility home or, or nursing home or otherwise uh, not living independently, though, uh, particularly if they have evidence of like malnutrition, those folks generally would benefit from a multivitamin uh, people with alcohol use disorder and and individuals who smoke, those folks, yeah, again, and that has something to do with dietary pattern and then overall dietary intake. So like you're getting double like double whammied. So one, like your dietary pattern isn't that varied and robust or whatever, and then the amount of food you're actually taking in is not that much either. So like you have an even bigger risk of being deficient. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the bottom bottom line is if hopefully the takeaways that people have is we don't really have clear, consistent evidence that should leave us feeling confident that supplementation for, again, generally healthy kind of asymptomatic all comers improves these very important outcomes. Again, heart disease and cancer are the top one, two causes of death in the U S. So like, that's why we care about them in particular. 
And then when it comes to the performance side, people might say, okay, like maybe there's some, I'll take any potential benefit I can. Um, so what about like if I tested all my nutrient levels and targeted supplementation based on that profile? So it's like, again, we don't really have evidence or strong reasons to believe that screening people who look fine, feel fine, have no complaints for these nutrient levels, not to mention all the complicated, tricky things about actually interpreting these blood tests that most people who are recommending these things do not know how to do. Mm-hmm. Um, like folks who work with inside tracker to fire some shots and like test uh, everything possible under the sun and have your like stoplight system. It's like, you don't know how to interpret what is coming back to you, much less make, you know, um, clear, strong recommendations that are likely to, to cause benefit afterwards. And there are also so many other potential benefits of getting these nutrients from the dietary pattern for people who have an intact gastrointestinal tract who can absorb and process these nutrients instead of from isolated supplementation. This ties into some of the issues we've talked about with the, you know, randomized controlled trial study design, some of the articles on our website that uh, Alan Flanagan wrote with us about testing this stuff, you know, in, in broad populations without actually seeing what their starting levels are and ending levels and things like that. But it's like, you know, Hey, me and you, I know we both have people who come at us because they think we are like big pharma people or something. Cause it's like, we care about getting people's blood cholesterol under control by whatever means we can. And, and, and then they don't bat an eye, you know, playing into the supplement industry, this $8 billion industry of multivitamins when it's like, Hey, we're saying it probably isn't going to benefit most of these people who are wanting to take it. And we recommend getting a lot of these nutrients from your diet. Uh, what a concept, right? There's all these other things that come with the the foods that you eat, polyphenols and flavonoids that you're probably not supplementing unless you're in that Cosmos cocoa trial. Um, there's food matrix effects. There's interactions between nutrients that happen in foods that don't happen when you know you're taking isolated supplements in, in pill form and things like that. So there's a reason why we emphasize the dietary pattern so much. We de-emphasize um, nutrient, mineral, vitamin supplementation. Um, uh, comparatively compared to the dietary pattern in otherwise healthy people who don't have risk for deficiencies. Um, again, and that's outright deficiencies, not so much worrying about like the sufficiency insufficiency piece, because again, like how confident am I that that's going to really impact your health trajectory, um, or performance really not that confident. So that's why I don't put a big priority or big emphasis on it when working with people. Yep. I, I, as always, I would encourage people to eat a health promoting dietary pattern. That's, that's varied. And, uh, you know, not worry about majoring in the minors in this case, micronutrients. So I think, I think we did it. I think we, we sufficiently covered the multivitamin podcast. I mean, last thing I guess is that like, you know, we all, we care not only about health, but our own performance. And again, I think we mentioned this maybe on the vitamin D one or something, but it's like, don't you think that if we, that if there was a clear potential for benefit that both of us would be taking one of these? Oh, well, I (laughs) bought that entire stock of the D ball and Winstrol <laughs> tainted multivitamin. And I have been taking that for a long time now. And so, yeah, yeah I, I think, yeah, if people are looking for a performance bump from multivitamins, you just find the tainted one and, and <laughs> that's your best option. So cool. Yeah. I think we did it. This has uh, been episode 185 on the Barbell Medicine podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Uh, we've got a whole gaggle of resources for you in the description below. So the, all the papers we talked about, all the articles, previous podcasts, etc., that we referenced, check those out at your leisure. And uh, before you go anywhere, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you the latest nuance in health and fitness. Thanks to Dr. Austin Baraki for joining me here on the Problem Medicine Podcast. And we'll see you next week and every week right here. See you guys later. Mm-hmm.